Chapter Thirty of A Short History of the World by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty, Confucius and Lao Tse. We have still to tell of two other great men, Confucius and Lao Tse, who lived in that wonderful century which began the adolescence of mankind, the sixth century B.C. In this history thus far. We have told very little of the early story of China. At present, that early history is still very obscure, and we look to Chinese explorers and archaeologists in the new China that is now arising to work out their past as thoroughly as the European past has been worked out during the last century. Very long ago, the first primitive Chinese civilizations arose in the great river valleys out of the primordial Heolithic culture. They had, like Egypt and Shumeria, the general characteristics of that culture, and they centered upon temples, in which priests and priest-kings offered the seasonal blood sacrifices. The life in those cities must have been very like the Egyptian and Shumerian life of six or seven thousand years ago, and very like the Maya life of Central America a thousand years ago. If there were human sacrifices, they had long given way to animal sacrifices before the dawn of history, and a form of picture writing was growing up long before a thousand years B.C. And just as the primitive civilizations of Europe and Western Asia were in conflict with the nomads of the desert, and the nomads of the north, so the primitive Chinese civilizations had a great cloud of nomadic peoples on their northern borders. There was a number of tribes akin in language and ways of living, who are spoken of in history in succession as the Huns, the Mongols, the Turks and Tartars. They changed and divided and combined and recombined, just as the Nordic peoples in North Europe and Central Asia changed and varied in name rather than in nature. These Mongolian nomads had horses earlier than the Nordic peoples, and it may be that in the region of the Altai Mountains they made an independent discovery of iron somewhere after 1000 BC. And just as, in the Western case, so ever and again these Eastern nomads would achieve a sort of political unity and become the conquerors and masters and revivers of this or that settled and civilized region. It is quite possible that the earliest civilization of China was not Mongolian at all any more than the earliest civilization of Europe and Western Asia was Nordic or Semitic. It is quite possible that the earliest civilization of China was a brunette civilization and of a peace with the earliest Egyptian, Shumerian, and Dravidian civilizations, and that, when the first recorded history of China began, there had already been conquests and intermixture. At any rate, we find that by 1750 BC, China was already a vast system of little kingdoms and city-states, all acknowledging a loose allegiance and paying more or less regularly more or less definite feudal dues to one great priest emperor the son of heaven the shang dynasty came to an end in 1125 bc 
a Chow dynasty succeeded Shang, and maintained China in a relaxing unity until the days of Ashoka in India and the of the Ptolemies in Egypt. Gradually China went to pieces during that long Chow period. Hunnish peoples came down and set up principalities. Local rulers discontinued their tribute and became independent. There was in the 6th century BC, says one Chinese authority, five or six thousand practically independent states in China. It was what the Chinese call in their records an age of confusion. But this age of confusion was compatible with much intellectual activity and with the existence of many local centers of art and civilized living. When we know more of Chinese history, we shall find that China also had her Miletus and her Athens, her Pergamum and her Macedonia. At present, we must be vague and brief about this period of Chinese division, simply because our knowledge is not sufficient for us to frame a coherent and consecutive story. And just as in divided Greece there were philosophers, and in shattered and captive Jewry prophets, so in disordered China there were philosophers and teachers at this time. In all these cases insecurity and uncertainty seemed to have quickened the better sort of mind. Confucius was a man of aristocratic origin and some official importance in a small state called Lu. Here, in a very parallel mood to the Greek impulse, he set up a sort of academy for discovering and teaching wisdom. The lawlessness and disorder of China distressed him profoundly. He conceived an ideal of a better government and a better life, and travelled from state to state seeking a prince who would carry out his legislative and educational ideas. He never found his prince. He found a prince, but court intrigues undermined the influence of the teacher, and finally defeated his reforming proposals. It is interesting to note that a century and a half later, the Greek philosopher Plato also sought a prince, and was for a time adviser to the tyrant Dionysius, who ruled Syracuse in Sicily. Confucius died a disappointed man. No intelligent ruler arises to take me as his master, he said, and my time has come to die. But his teaching had more vitality than he imagined in his declining and hopeless years, and it became a great formative influence with the Chinese people. It became one of what the Chinese call the three teachings, the other two being those of Buddha and of Lao Tse. The gist of the teaching of Confucius was the way of the noble or aristocratic man. He was concerned with personal conduct as much as Gautama was concerned with the peace of self-forgetfulness, and the Greek with external knowledge, and the Jew with righteousness. He was the most public-minded of all great teachers. He was supremely concerned by the confusion and miseries of the world, and he wanted to make men noble in order to bring about a noble world. He sought to regulate conduct to an extraordinary extent, to provide sound rules for every occasion in life. A polite, public-spirited gentleman, rather sternly self-disciplined, 
was the ideal he found already developing in the northern Chinese world, and one to which he gave a permanent form. The teaching of Lao Tse, who was for a long time in charge of the imperial library of the Chou dynasty, was much more mystical and vague and elusive than that of Confucius. He seems to have preached a stoical indifference to the pleasures and powers of the world, and a return to an imaginary simple life of the past. He left writings very contracted in style and very obscure. He wrote in riddles. After his death his teachings, like the teachings of Gautama Buddha, were corrupted and overlaid by legends, and had the most complex and extraordinary observances and superstitious ideas grafted upon them. In China, just as in India, primordial ideas of magic and monstrous legends, out of the childish past of our race, struggled against the new thinking in the world, and succeeded in plastering it over with grotesque, irrational, and antiquated observances. Both Buddhism and Taoism, which ascribes itself largely to Lao Tse, as one finds them in China now, are religions of monk, temple, priest, and offering of a type as ancient in form, if not in thought, as the sacrificial religions of ancient Sumeria and Egypt. But the teaching of Confucius was not so overlaid, because it was limited and plain and straightforward, and lent itself to no such distortions. North China, the China of the Huang Ho River, became Confucian in thought and spirit. South China, Yangtze Kiang China, became Taoist. Since those days, a conflict has always been traceable in Chinese affairs between these two spirits, the spirit of the North and the spirit of the South, between, in latter times, Pekin and Nankin, between the official-minded, upright and conservative North, and the sceptical, artistic, lax and experimental South. The divisions of China of the Age of Confusion reached their worst stage in the 6th century BC. The Chou dynasty was so enfeebled and so discredited that Lao Tse left the unhappy court and retired into private life. Three nominally subordinate powers dominated the situation in those days. Tsis and Tsin, both northern powers, and Chu, which was an aggressive military power in the Yangtze Valley. At last, Tsi and Tsin formed an alliance, subdued Chu, and imposed a general treaty of disarmament and peace in China. The power of Tsin became predominant. Finally, about the time of Ashoka in India, the Tsin monarch seized upon the sacrificial vessels of the Chou Emperor and took over his sacrificial duties. His son, Shi Huang Ti, king in 246 BC, emperor in 220 BC, is called in the Chinese chronicles the first universal emperor. More fortunate than Alexander, Shi Huang Ti reigned for 36 years as king and emperor. His energetic reign marks the beginning of a new era of unity and prosperity for the Chinese people. He fought vigorously against the Hunnish invaders from the northern deserts, and he began that immense work, 
the great wall of china to set a limit to their incursions end of chapter thirteen